Okay, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 11. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be focusing in on prayer. Uh, prayer, it's so important. It's such an important part of the Christian life. And uh, I was hoping to kind of maybe get all of this done in one sermon, but there's just too much material here, and we're going to have to do it in two, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because it is important, and we need to spend our time focusing upon it. Uh, the first 13 verses of Luke 11 are all about prayer. And tonight we're going to look at the first four verses, and then next week we'll look at verses 5 through 13. And this week we're going to be covering what is often called the Lord's Prayer, probably much better referred to as the model prayer. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is actually uh, a prayer that we would understand in John 17, where Jesus is praying for his disciples. This prayer is more of a model prayer of uh, how we're supposed to pray after this manner we are called to pray. And then next week we're going to learn a couple of parables. And particularly the parable of importunity, the importunist man. And we'll talk about what importunity is. Uh, it's a word that's often misunderstood. It's not a word that we use very much often, uh, in, the king, uh, in the English language anymore. And we'll talk about what it means to pray with importunity. And when we understand what importunity means, then we'll really get a picture of what Jesus is, uh, how Jesus is calling for us to pray. So... Uh, As we walk through the next several weeks, we're going to answer three questions. Tonight we're going to answer one question. Next week we're going to answer two more. Then tonight's question will be, what should we pray? What should we pray? Next week we'll add two more. How should we pray? And why should we pray? So those are the three questions that we'll answer over these next two weeks. And we do have a lot to cover, so let's dig in. The Bible says in verse 1, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So verse 1 gives us the context, really for the next 12 verses of the text, for verses 2 through 13. And the context is this. Jesus was praying. He was praying, the Bible says, in a certain place. And he finishes this prayer. We don't know how long the prayer was or anything. And uh, it would appear that just perhaps... The disciples may not have fallen asleep this time. Uh, They're well known for falling asleep during Jesus' prayer times, right? It is not an uncommon thing for them while Jesus is praying to doze off. It did not just happen in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his uh, his, uh, crucifixion. It actually happened quite regularly uh, while Jesus was praying that they were sleeping. It doesn't say they were sleeping here, but here we find a disciple, one of the disciples, Jesus has finished praying, and the disciple asks a question. He says, Lord, teach us to pray. And he makes the appeal on the basis of the fact that John had taught his disciples how to pray. And so would you teach us to pray as John had taught his disciples? And don't lose this context. That Jesus is answering the question, Lord, or or answering the request, Lord, teach us to pray. And why is this so important? Well, because many people in the Christian life really struggle with prayer. And one of the things that they struggle with is that they feel like they don't know how to pray. Particularly young Christians, they struggle because they feel like they're doing it wrong. And they'll say something like, well, I don't sound right when I pray. 
or I don't know what to ask for when I pray. I don't quite know how to pray. And while that's understandable, because you hear people that have been praying for many years and they have a method with which they pray, and I'm going to introduce to you next week a method of prayer that I think will be very beneficial to you. We'll talk about that uh, next week. But there's they have a method with which they pray, and, and uh, some of them are very seasoned and they sound good, and, and uh, some of them are truly, there's truly spirit-filled prayers. And, and uh, so you say, well, I don't feel like I sound like that, or I don't feel uh, that way, or I feel very nervous and distracted when I'm praying, or whatever the case may be, and I just don't know how to pray. I don't know what I should ask. I don't know what I shouldn't ask. I don't know why I should ask. And, and what's most interesting about this is that we have these passages in Scripture, where literally the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, and Jesus says, this is what it, what it means to pray. And so if we can take what is these next 12 verses, the content, the ideas, and if we can apply these to our lives, well, we can't do much better than that, can we? Because this is Jesus, the Son of God, um, the second person of the, of the Trinity, saying, this is what it means to pray. And so if we have down what God says prayer is, then we're probably doing okay. So as we step into the text this evening, I encourage you to compare what we're about to learn with your own prayer life, with the manner in which you pray, with the expectations you take into prayer. Are you praying the way Jesus teaches us to pray? And with a solemn heart, we should step into this passage, echoing the request of that disciple on that day, Lord, would you teach us to pray? That should be the prayer of your heart. Lord, would you teach me to pray? And this evening, we'll begin answering this first question, as I mentioned, what should we pray? What should we pray? So we read verses 2 through 4, and we read this. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now in Luke we find the words of our Lord, when ye pray, say. From this direct reference, we're tempted to believe that we should be praying this prayer verbatim, word for word. And indeed, it is not necessarily wrong for us to pray these words, but we need to take care as well that we do not get out of focus. Focusing upon the words instead of focusing upon the concepts behind the words. In other words, you don't need to pray these exact words themselves. There's no direct power in the words themselves. And this is what can separate us sometimes as as uh, born-again Christians from some ritualistic religions around the world. Ritualistic religions around the world often have what we might call incantations where they believe that a certain set of words actually have with those set of words a sort of power to them. This is not uncommon uh, among pagan religions, that they'll have a set of words that they repeat, and that, that repetition of a set of words they believe will bring blessing. This is actually not uncommon in the liturgical denominations either, is it? 
Whether you're talking about the liturgies of the Catholic Church or the liturgies of the Lutheran Church, oftentimes their prayers will be just the same words over and over again. And and if we'll talk about vain repetition in a moment, but even not not factoring in the vain repetition idea, many of them truly believe that the words themselves and the order that they're said and the the actual words are essential for the blessing. And I can't help when I think of that to think of incantations and spells in pagan religions. Witchcraft. That they have spells that are written down and you repeat those words at certain times and in certain ways and it's supposed to do things. As if the words themselves have powers. But you know, even beyond the liturgical denominations and pagans, there is a movement in the church today called the Word of Faith Movement. And the Word of Faith Movement, we, we, uh, there's several other names for it, and they kind of overlap, but uh, often called Name It and Claim It, or Prosperity Gospel. The Word of Faith Movement, it's a recycled false doctrine in the modern era, begun by a man named E.W. Kenyon, continued by a disciple of his named Kenneth Hagin, often considered the father of the Word of Faith Movement, It's continued in the teachings today of people such as Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Joseph Prince, Joyce Meyer. Particularly popular within the charismatic movements. And it focuses upon the words that you say and gaining personal advantages, spiritual and material, by claiming those advantages with our words. The idea in the Word of Faith movement is that we have power. That our words have power. That God will actually do things at our behest because of our words. And so they say, rejoice in that power. Love that power. Claim that power. But it's interesting. Because when we were studying Luke 10, Jesus warned his disciples against rejoicing in power, didn't he? Do you remember Luke 10 verses 18 to 20? They came back saying, Jesus, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. We're rejoicing in this power. And Jesus says to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, he says, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in the power. Rejoice in the one behind the power. And when we rejoice in the power itself, we set ourselves up for the same spiritual failure that literally sent Lucifer out of heaven. And unfortunately, this has been the result of the Word of Faith movement. Regardless of whatever elements that uh, of, of truth are found there, and of course they mix truth with error in order to make it sound normal and right, if nothing else, we find them rejoicing in the power itself rather than in the God behind the power. As a matter of fact, one of their proponents, a man that pastors in Atlanta named Creflo Dollar, Last time we were in Atlanta, we went right by his church. Uh, he literally says that God has made us little gods. And that therefore our words have power. We can name it and claim it. 
And if we say it with faith, it will be ours no matter what. And by seeing themselves as little gods, they have followed in the same path as Lucifer, have they not? I mean, isn't that what Lucifer said? I am God, I will exalt myself above heaven? It's the same path. So prayer is not about exercising the power of words. Prayer is not an incantation where we receive a blessing because of the words we use. And this is where we get to the vain repetition idea. Particularly as we consider the the Catholic Church today, vain repetition becomes quite regular. The repetition of the Hail Marys, those sorts of things. But what does the Bible tell us? What does Jesus warn us about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8? He says, And when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. He warns against vain repetition. Now it's important to distinguish between asking for something regularly and vain repetition. Jesus highlights the difference himself. When a person prays with the expectation that the process of repeating the words themselves somehow earns them more favor, then it's vain repetition. An example of this, as I mentioned, would be the Catholic Hail Marys, where in order to, to do your penance, you have to say a certain number of them. Or a person repeats a line over and over and over again thinking that by repeating that line, somehow it's going to self-actualize into their life. They repeat it over and over and over again. And this is, by its very definition, vain repetition. Closer to home, closer to our circles, can be the prayer before the meal. Huh. Can that not just dissolve into vain repetition? Have you ever noticed it just kind of dissolving into vain repetition? We say the same words before eating, often without thinking, as if God will be displeased with us if we don't invoke these words before eating, as if somehow the food will not be okay anymore if we don't invoke a certain set of words, if we don't bless it before we eat. Sometimes we put so little thought into that prayer and its content and its purpose that we don't even remember where we prayed. And 10 minutes into the meal, you say, did we pray before the meal? Right? Because we're just not even thinking about it. We, 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 we did not engage in that prayer enough to actually remember whether or not we did so before we prayed. And this can come perilously close, if we're not careful, to the idea of vain repetition. Now, we call it blessing the food sometimes. It's a bit of a misnomer that can cause us to believe that our speaking will somehow endow the food with some supernatural quality of blessing. Uh, sometimes when I, 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 sometimes I even struggle to ask the Lord to bless the food to my body when we're praying before we like a big greasy pizza. Can God really bless that food to your body? I, I don't know if He can, right? I guess it can give us strength and energy, but I don't know if He can actually bless this food to the nourishment of my body. Uh, but we'll do it anyway because that's what we do. Uh, so, so, but but we, you know, the, the idea is this: Jesus did not say, "Thou shalt this pray us before us to meal," right? We do it, and it's right, and it's good, because we ought to be thankful for the meal. But listen, if you're not actually praying before a meal because you're thankful for the meal, if you're not actually engaging your heart in a prayer to say, God, there are places in this world where people don't get three meals a day. There are places in this world where somebody may not know if they're going to get their next meal. And I want to genuinely thank you 
that there's a meal set before me and I want to be a good steward of this blessing. And if, if that's not the spirit of that prayer, then is it just vain repetition? Is it empty? I mean, that's exactly what Jesus says. Don't do that. That's what the heathen do. And they think that somehow for their much speaking, they're, they're gaining favor with God. Or they're going to get what they ask. We ought to be careful. So Jesus says, when you pray, say. But we need not take these words as meaning verbatim. When you pray, say. In fact, if we move forward in the verse... Uh, in, in the verse here in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. If we move forward one more verse, Jesus introduces this model prayer in Matthew. And notice how he introduces it in verse 9. He says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. After this manner, pray this way. Not necessarily pray these words, but incorporate these concepts, these ideas into your prayers. Come in this attitude. Come in this spirit. And what is the attitude, the spirit, the direction that our prayers ought to take us? Well, that's where we're going next. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Number one, what should we pray? When we pray before God, we should, number one, come in humility. We should come in humility. Jesus begins his teaching on prayer with the disposition of our hearts. And in this first phrase, we find several bits of acknowledgement. First, we pray to the Father and acknowledge Him as our Father. It is perhaps not insignificant that Jesus teaches us that we should pray to the Father. Certainly, we see examples upon this earth of people crying out to Jesus, Lord, save me. When Peter is falling beneath the sea after he took his eyes off of Jesus while he was walking on water, he cries out to the Lord. We see uh, people who are demon-possessed or who have family or demon-possessed saying, Lord, would you save my son? Would you save my daughter? Would you heal my child? Whatever it might be, we see those cries. But we do not actually see this example encouraged in the epistles. What we find instead is a general design whereby we pray to the Father by the authority of the Son, through the intercession of the Spirit. All throughout the Bible, we find that we are called to pray in Jesus' name. Because we come to God by the authority which was purchased on the cross and given in salvation. Now, we've mentioned this before. Uh, John 14, 14 says, If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, we, we find further explanation in 1 John that we ask according to his will. But remember, to pray in Jesus' name. Now, we always, well, I, I almost always add, at least in public prayer, in Jesus' name at the end of that prayer. Sometimes at the beginning and at the end. I did that this morning. We come to you in Jesus' name and through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we pray in Jesus' name, but that doesn't actually mean invoking the five characters of his name, J-E-S-U-S, right? To pray in Jesus' name means to pray in alignment with Jesus' message and Jesus' works. We've talked about this many times, that a person's name is far more than just his moniker. It is the essence of who he is. If I were to say, my, my family, the Wickler, the Wickler family has a good name around town, it doesn't mean people like the name Wickler. Right? It means we have a good reputation. 
It means that the essence of the character of our family is seen in a positive light. So to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's to pray in the essence. So if you don't actually say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of your prayer, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. Now, why do we do it? Well, we do it to set an example that we are praying in Jesus' name, to teach people that we ought to pray in Jesus' name, to remind ourselves of what, of what, it, of, of in whose name we're praying. But at the same time, it can become, again, a little bit empty, can it? To where we don't even really think about the fact that we're coming. And so we'll say in Jesus' name, amen, even though when we came to prayer, we were out of fellowship with the Lord, we're seeking things according to our own lusts, and yet at the end of it, we say in Jesus' name, and God says, nah, <laughs> nah, that one's not in my son's name. If it were in my son's name, you'd have it, and you're not going to get it because it's not in my son's name. You're doing it to consume it upon your own lusts. So, again... Thoughtful, right? We ought to be thoughtful in our prayers. So John 14, 14, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Because if it's in his name, it's aligned with his character, it's aligned with who he is, and so therefore it will be right. God will want it. Then we also come by the Spirit, whereby the Spirit of God intercedes. We might say translates our prayers. Romans chapter 8, verses tw- verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, there is a controversy today over whether or not people should pray to Jesus or pray to the Spirit. They are all in the Godhead. They are all God. So I don't, I, I, I don't know that we can be definitive on this. The Bible does not say, if I may use a double negative here, the Bible does not say not to pray to Jesus or the Spirit. But I do have two particular thoughts on this. First, I've often found that those who struggle to pray to the Father, struggle specifically to pray to the Father because they have a problem with the Father in the Godhead. In other words, they see Jesus as their loving friend. They see the Spirit as their personal guide. But they see the Father as someone who is mean and inaccessible or unapproachable. Oftentimes it's because they had a bad father figure and so they struggle with thinking of God as their father. They see God as a grumpy father who shuts himself in his office and grumbles because his son is letting all of his miscreants into his home. Right? But he bears it enough. He just doesn't like it. Likewise, it's not uncommon for men and women, as I mentioned, to have a bad or absent father figure to struggle to pray unto God as their father. To love him as their father. Because when they think of the concept of fatherhood, they only have a bad example. But these are spiritual issues that ought to be worked through, not simply bypassed by praying to Jesus. If you don't see the father the way the Bible presents the father, as loving and long-suffering and kind and gentle and good. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) If you don't see the father this way, then you ought to probably spend the next couple of months, maybe spend the summer... Studying what the Bible has to say about fathers and about your heavenly father and purposefully seeking to change your perspective of him. And as we continue through the message this evening, we'll see just how we are to perceive the father. We'll see that a little bit this week. We'll see that even more next week. So the first thought is that if if you have a problem praying to the father, then there's probably a spiritual problem there. Secondly, Uh, Whether we should pray to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, my second thought is this. 
While the Godhead is indeed one, we simply see no teaching on how to pray in the Bible that tells us to pray to Jesus or tells us to pray to the Spirit. While we um, consider several prayers in the Old Testament, certainly there are people that appeal to the angel of the Lord, who we know is the pre-incarnate second person of, uh, of the Godhead. While we see in the New Testament, while Jesus was on the earth, people crying out to Jesus, as I mentioned. When the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray, how did Jesus tell them to pray? He said, say this, our Father. Jesus commanded us to pray to the Father. Jesus could have said, call upon me in your day of trouble, but he didn't. He encouraged men to pray unto the Father. And so, while I don't necessarily think a person praying to Jesus or praying to the Spirit is doing something wrong, I think if we are to be honest with what the Bible teaches us about how to pray, we're we're not going to come to any other conclusion than that we should be lifting up our prayers to the first person of the Godhead, to the Father. And if the Bible tells us to do so, I really don't see why we should do anything else. That being said, and perhaps you could call this thought three, um, people have been taught to pray to Jesus. It is not the end of the world spiritually. Does God refuse to hear the prayers of those who pray to Jesus? Uh, probably not. So, how should we pray? Well, Jesus does exemplify, pray to our Father. But others have not been taught that way. And it might be a good opportunity for us to engage in a spiritual conversation with folks. Our Father is how he begins. And then, notice how the heart of Jesus is aligned with the Father. Notice how he teaches us to align our hearts with the Father. Calling him our Father which art in heaven. And then hallowed be thy name. We acknowledge that God is beyond us. That he is higher than us. That he does not dwell in a temple made with hands. Uh, that he is a God that is to be hallowed. In the words of Stephen, the church's first martyr, Acts chapter 7, verses 48 to 50, he says, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophets, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? Stephen is quoting Isaiah 66 there. As God says that he does not live in a temple made with hands. He does not need us. We need to recognize him as being in heaven and his name being sanctified, his name being set apart. He, who he is being greater and higher and, and more than we are. We do not pray unto a man, we pray unto a most high God. His name is hallowed, literally holy, purified, set apart. So we begin our prayers by acknowledging just how great our God is. Just how great He is. Just how holy He is. Just how set apart He is. We are aligning ourselves and saying, God, I'm coming to you and I'm not coming to you to tell you how I ought to be. I'm not coming to you to tell you what, to, to tell you what, how things need to be. I'm coming to you to pray to you, to humble myself before you, to recognize that you're up there and I'm down here. You're greater. I'm lesser. You're in charge and I'm not. Like the entrance into a presence of a king, where a person's first act is to bow 
as a reflection of the fact that he's coming under the authority of the one who's sitting on the throne, right? Person comes into the presence of a king, they come, they bow, then they do their business with the king. Well, why did they bow first? They bowed first to say, king, I'm coming and you're in charge. That's what this first phrase is. It's when we enter the throne and he's our father and we have the authority to be there. We have every right to be there. But we're still going to bow before we speak. That's the idea. Our father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Bowing our hearts before him. Come in humility. Number two. Come in agreement. Come in agreement. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Literally there in the Greek, thy kingdom is, uh, it will come. His kingdom is sure to come. The will of the Lord is surely to be done, is it not? In heaven and in earth. We see precedent in scripture to pray for the sure return of our Lord, Revelation 22.20. We see precedent in scripture to be desirous of the Lord's appearing, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. But what we see here is more of an acknowledgement of that which will be. We spoke a couple of weeks ago in Luke 10 about the purpose of prayer. And and while we made it clear that prayer is not to be fatalistic. In other words, we don't just pray for things that will or won't happen regardless of whether we pray. We also mentioned that prayer does not exist only for our benefit uh, or to change us. God's plan goes on and things happen. But we did also recognize that one of the functions of prayer, quite, quite, excuse me, quite naturally, is that it directs our heart into alignment with God's heart. That as we pray, we're not just seeking the things that we desire, but we are also seeking God's desires. We are seeking to know God's will. And this is what we see here. We see such an idea here. We're praying for God's kingdom to come and for it to come quickly. We're praying for God's will to be done on on earth as it is in heaven. It's hard for me to come to the Lord and say, God, you're, you're great, I'm not, to bow before him, to sanctify his name, and then to come and say, God, I want your kingdom to come. I pray that it will come. I want your will to be done. And then, by the way, God, will you let me go do this sin? Or, God, I, I'm kind of wondering if I should do this. I know it's sinful, but I, I, I think it's your will. It's kind of hard to do after you just said, Thy will be done, isn't it? It's kind of hard to, 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 to pray in the lusts of your own heart after you have truly, genuinely humbled yourself and said, God, I want your will to be done. So when we come to prayer, the point is not, God, even when we pray for things that we, we, we truly do desire, we desire People to be healed. We desire those that we've prayed for health-wise to be healed from their illnesses, to be healed from their cancer, to be healed from their their, their, uh, injuries. We desire that. And we go before the Lord and we say, God, would you do that? But we always go to the Lord with a heart aligned, desiring His will most of all. Because if God does not want to heal that person, then far be it from me to demand something of God that God does not want. Now that being said... God responds to the prayers of his saints. So God might very well heal that person in response to our prayers because it is in line with his will. And our prayers do matter. They do have an effect. But we're making our prayers with a genuine heart, things that are burdened to us, but seeking to align them with God's will, seeking to align them with God's kingdom, knowing that if we align ourselves with God's kingdom, with God's will, 
then we're going to be in just we're going to be just fine. All right. And so as we pray, we're not just seeking God's will, but we are aligning ourselves with it. We are positioning our hearts to accept it and to lead others into it as well. What should we pray? Well, first, we should pray in a manner that is befitting humility. Second, we should pray in a manner that comes in agreement. Third, we should pray seeking provision. The next phrase, give us day by day our daily bread. This is the first element of Jesus' model prayer that we might rightly call a request, right? To this point, what have we done? We've bowed our hearts before Him and we've sought to align our hearts with Him. Now it's time to ask for things. And this reminds us that prayer is not always about the asking. We'll talk about that more next week. Just as every conversation with a friend or loved one is not asking them for things, and if it always is, then you're going to lose that loved one kind of quickly, right? You roll their eyes and say, Ah, the only time they ever call me is when they need something. They never call just to see how I'm doing. They never call just because they care about me. They call and they do their little small talk and then they say, hey, by the way, I need 50 bucks, right? Uh, and, and that gets old. So prayer is not always just about asking. In the same way, conversations are not always about asking. But here we do find the request and this request is for provision. God wants us to ask him for the things that we need. We spoke a, keep, a couple of weeks ago about how this works. There are certain elements of asking, which are us asking God for things that he's already told us that we may have. Then there are certain elements of asking, which are, are us asking God for things which he has not specifically promised, but which are not wrong to ask. And in both cases, the point of asking is to receive that which is according to God's will. And recall when we spoke of this in Luke 10, I used the illustration of myself as a father interacting with my children. That there are things which my children ought to expect and which they receive as they naturally align themselves with my will, like breakfast. Right? So uh, my daughters are, even this morning I had to say it, my daughter was in bed and I said, well here's how this goes. Uh, you're hungry and there is breakfast on the table so you need to be at the breakfast table before we pray. If you're not there before we pray, you don't get breakfast. And so while, while it is fully understandable that, that dad has provided breakfast, so that they say, Dad, I'm hungry, or Dad, can we eat? And I would say, of course, yes, we can, because it's breakfast time. They still have to align themselves with Daddy's timetable if they're going to get it, right? And that's the provision that we can expect. I'm not going to completely reiterate these illustrations, but then there are other things that, that are not normal. Dad, can I have a treat after lunch? And it's not wrong for them to ask, and then they seek to know Daddy's will on that, and if I say yes, great. If I say no, okay. Because it's daddy's will and daddy wants what's best for us. I encourage you to go back and to listen to the, that sermon in Luke 10 if you want a little bit more insight into that. Um, and we'll talk more about it as we get into next week as well. But God wants you to ask him for things. The things you need, even the things that you want. He wants you to rely upon him for provision. He wants you to rely upon him for the bless, for blessings. He wants to be your go-to source for your concerns and your needs and your desires. Our Lord said to the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 33 verses 2 and 3, Thus saith the Lord, the, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it and established it, 
The Lord is his name. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. In the context, God was speaking directly to Israel about the opportunity for them to find mercy at the end of their 70 years of judgment. Yet this message for God's people to call upon him is the disposition of our Lord toward his people. God loves us. God wants to bless us. He wants us to cry unto him. He wants us to seek him in our day of need. He wants us to run to him. But take note, he gives to those who acknowledge him. He blesses those who align with him. He cannot bless the rebellious child any more than I can bless my rebellious children. God desires to be our provider. He desires to be our sustainer. He wants to be our go-to in times of help. He, and while this prayer seems so basic, I think we really need to do some, some looking inward here, some introspection. Is God ever really your go-to in time of need? With the general material wealth and societal advancements found in our culture, it's not that uncommon to find believers who really don't think of God in their day of need. It is uh, rather uncommon to find believers who actually go to God first. I can't tell you how many times I've had a situation come up, whether it be a vehicle issue or an appliance issue or a quick decision that needs to be made or not quick decision that needs to be made or a health problem or whatever it might be. And it seems as though I run to everyone else first but God. I talk to all the people I know who might know something and I, I, I check my bank account to see if there's enough to replace the item and I do all of those things. But, but then at the end of the day, I say, well, wait a minute. Did I ever actually even talk to God about that? What's your default when you have a need? Whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, what's your default? Do you run to the bank account to pick up more hours for, at work? Do you run to the government? Do you run to social charities? Do you run to medical experts? Now, don't get me wrong. Each one of these has its place. I'm not saying these are wrong. Remember our message this morning. We, we can live and use this life. But can we call it provision if we're going outside of God and we're not even seeking God for it? Can it, can it be rightly be said that we can only call it provision if it's done God's way and according to God's design? Can it be rightly be said that we can only call it provision if it's the result of a prayerful dependence upon God, not a replacement for prayerful dependence upon God? I fear that for all of the blessings which an affluent society provides, it tempts us to solve our problems apart from God far too often. And so we're not reaping the blessings of God's provision because we're falling back on all of the safety nets that we have in an affluent society. And we have completely forgotten, hey, maybe before I run to this or that or that or that safety net, I should just go to God and say, hey, God, I have this need. What, what can you do about it? And then God might provide something special in a way that we never would have expected. When God brings trials and chastening into our lives, we can run to safety nets. And in doing so, we might not, we might deprive ourselves of God's blessings and of God's lessons. Imagine a Job in our society. 
he loses everything he has. And instead of sitting in sackcloth and ashes and uh, seeking to God for his vindication, he says, well, I'll be able to get this from so-and-so and I'll be able to go to that charity for this and the government can put me on this assistance for that and then I'll just start rebuilding. Job would have missed some pretty important lessons if he hadn't have yielded the circumstances to the Lord. Now again, I'm not saying that all of those things are inherently wrong, but they're only right when they are actually God's provision. If we're coming outside of God's provision and using safety nets that are outside of God's provision, not only are you missing out on God's blessings for you, but you are, I guarantee you, you are missing out on important spiritual lessons that God wants you to learn about reliance, about faith, about trust. And so it is that we continue through this model of what we should pray. We find that we ought to be asking God for things. We ought to be saying, God, you will provide, and I trust you to provide. And I know that you will provide. Because it is His will. Always fully invested in the reality that God is our provider and all we have comes from Him. We could go to Matthew and talk more about it. We don't have time this evening. But Jesus gave that great sermon in Matthew 6. Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And and yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He talks about the ravens of the field and how they're fed, the lilies of the field and how they're arrayed. He says, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, shall he not much more clothe you? And then what does he say? O ye of little faith. What should we pray? Well, we certainly shouldn't pray in little faith. Let's come to him with our needs. Come in humility. Come in agreement. Come for provision. Come for fellowship. Come for fellowship. Number four, as we consider the idea of forgiveness our sins, forgive us our sins. Notice what it says here. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. We must understand that the Bible speaks of two distinct concepts with forgiveness. First, there's eternal forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness is purchased on the cross through Jesus' shed blood and secured through his resurrection. It is applied to the spirit of any man who accepts the gift of the gospel by placing his full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, by believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. That is... Forgiveness of sins, the eternal forgiveness unto salvation. This is the forgiveness that's spoken of in Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's forgiveness of sins in the eternal aspect, the eternal idea, equated with redemption through Christ's blood. A one-time transaction. Not something that we need to be praying for every time we go before the Lord, is it? You don't have to pray, God, would you save me every time you come before the Lord in prayer. It's a one-time transaction. You do it, and it's done. And you're saved, and you're always saved, and it's, it, it's done with. So that can't be what Jesus is talking about here when he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And as, as it will be mentioned in Matthew, for if we don't forgive others their trespasses, then God will not forgive us our trespasses. That certainly cannot be talking about salvation, can it? Because that is not something we need to be coming to every single time we pray. To regularly ask God to save us, in fact, either reflects ignorance of what it means to be saved or ignorance of how 
to be saved. But there is another forgiveness spoken of in the Bible, isn't there? It's the forgiveness that we consider in 1 John 1, 9. It's the forgiveness that we consider here in Luke chapter 11. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not a salvation verse, folks. This is a verse about fellowship. This is a verse about coming back into fellowship with the Lord when we've stepped out of fellowship with him. You don't go to the book of 1 John when you want to talk about how to be saved. The book of 1 John is about how to live in fullness of joy through fellowship with Christ. 1 John, in my opinion, is actually John's commentary on Jesus' teachings to his disciples in John 13 to 17. It does not tell us how to be saved, but how to walk in fellowship once we are saved. And this is important because the, first, the, the language of 1 John lends itself to absolutes about the nature of works. If you do this, you're in darkness. If you don't do this, you're in light. If we're talking about salvation there, then every time I hate my brother, I, I'm unsaved again. Uh-oh. And then I have to walk back in the light. Well, that, that's not right because he's talking about the believer walking out of the light, stepping out of the light into the fellowship with darkness, loving the world and the things of the world, and then stepping out of fellowship with Christ. We know that works cannot save us. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If we're saved by grace without works, then it is, it, it is misguided of us to think that works can cause us to fall out of salvation, isn't it? If we didn't work ourselves into salvation, then how can we work ourselves out of salvation? It's an inconsistency. Why would our merit cause us to lose something that our merit did not cause us to gain? However, as a believer, works are essential to fellowship, aren't they? Our fellowship with Christ is dependent upon our works. And one of those works is confession, confessing our sin. When we offend the word of God, we don't lose our salvation, but we do fall out of fellowship, just like any relationship. My wife and I are married, and when, when, when I do something wrong, my wife and I fall out of fellowship. We don't have to become remarried every time I have to ask for forgiveness. We don't become unmarried every time I offend my wife. But we do lose fellowship. And when I ask for forgiveness, then we are able to come back into, into fellowship one with another. That's the idea. That's the message. And that's the message of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, bringing us back into abiding fellowship with Christ. And this is the concept of forgiveness that we're reading about in Luke 11. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Here's the message, that if you don't forgive others for their sins, you will be out, you are out of fellowship with Christ. If you are living in unforgiveness, you are out of fellowship with Christ. We talked about forgiveness in Sunday school this morning, right? And how forgiveness is not contingent upon somebody asking for forgiveness. Aren't you thankful that that's the case when we read this verse? Because if our forgiveness, if, if, if forgiveness was, was contingent upon someone asking for us so that we could not forgive others until they asked for it, then if they didn't ask for us, for, for it, then we would be absolutely out of fellowship with Christ at all times. Because God would not forgive us because we've not forgiven others. We'd be in bad way. The Bible says in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Unforgiveness is iniquity. If I regard unforgiveness in my heart, God will not hear my prayers. If my heart is full of unconfessed sin, knowing unconfessed sin, the Lord will shut his ears to me. 
And so important is this, that there is precedent in the Bible, not only to confess known sin, but also to seek cleansing for sins of ignorance. David would write this in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent. I've heard people say before, the secret faults are not things that I don't know about, but things I do in secret. I disagree. And the reason why is because he is, he is comparing secret faults to presumptuous sins. Sins of presumption would be things that I know are wrong, but I'm doing them anyway. And so the natural contrast to that would be things that I don't know are wrong. Whether it's, whether it's, it's, it's in secret or not, I can do presumptuous sins in secret, right? As a matter of fact, most of the presumptuous sins we do are in secret, right? I don't go to my, my, my family and say, okay, we're, we're gonna sin today, right? The Bible says this, we're gonna do that. Let's just see how that goes today. I don't do that. My, my, my presumptuous sins are, uh, my, my family's not around, or it's in, it's in the, the rebellion of my own heart, or nobody's looking, or uh, I've really got to get there, and so I might as well break that law. Uh, no one's going to see me anyway. Uh, the, there's no police around. That sort of an idea. Presumptuous sins, right? Those aren't the, 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 the uh, presumptuous sins are often done in secret. So the contrast here is between Secret sins, as in sins I don't know about, and then sins that I do know about. So there's precedent to say that we ought to even go before the Lord and say, Well, Father, what, what ways have I offended you today? Would you, would your Holy Spirit lay them upon my heart? Would, would, would you convict my heart of things that I've done? And then, well, Father, I don't even remember everything that I did today. If there's anything that I did that was against you, Lord, I, 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 I don't want to be that way, and my heart would desire to confess that. Now, someone say you can't confess that which you don't know. I agree with that too. So there's some debate here. But there's precedent. And you, you do with that what you will. So we ask God for forgiveness. And it's important to understand very well that God has promised to treat us the same way that we treat others. So in terms of walking in fellowship, not salvation here, doesn't mean if you don't forgive others, you'll be in hell. That's not what we're talking about. God will not forgive us our sins for fellowship if we are harboring unforgiveness of others. God will judge us by the same standard we judge others. So we read in the Matthew version of this prayer, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You will be in perpetual lack of fellowship if you're walking in unforgiveness. Notice this one as well. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. With what measure ye meet, ye shall be measured, it shall be measured to you again. The degree to which you forgive others is the degree to which God will show that to you. The degree to which you judge others is the degree to which God will hold you accountable as well. That's the idea. And so we need to be careful that our hearts are positioned to forgive and to show grace. Because God will treat us in fellowship, according to fellowship, in the context of fellowship, God will treat us in like manner to the way we treat others. What should we pray? Well, come in humility. Come in agreement. Come for provision. Come for fellowship. Number five, come for spiritual empowerment. The final phrase here, 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the final aspect of this prayer in Luke. That we would be delivered from evil. The idea of temptation in the Bible can mean temptation to sin. But it can also mean trials, such as persecution and distress. However, the, the idea of trials, of suffering, is, far, is oftentimes, is very often a different word than the Greek word that we find here. This Greek word far more regularly speaks of temptation unto sin. Now the Bible makes it clear that God is not the author of sin. Nor does God ever tempt us to sin. James 1, verses 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I... Uh, excuse me, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So lust uh, is the propensity of our heart that leads us to sin. Temptation is not wrong. Temptation is not a sinful thing. It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin comes when we start to entertain our lusts for that desi- that that sin, for that that um, transgression, and then our lusts lead us to do it. And so our lusts cause us to sin, and then of course sin bears the fruit of corruption in our lives that the Bible calls death. So God does not tempt us with evil, but he will, notice, suffer us to be tempted. He allows the temptations, which will then appeal to our lusts and bring about the enticements. But the Bible also promises that God never allows us to have a temptation in our lives, which is greater than we can handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye, that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. God will always make a way of escape in any temptation he allows you to go through. In other words, he says, okay, I'm going to allow this thing to come into their lives. I know this thing is going to appeal to their lust. Their lust is going to bring temptation and that temptation is going to be to sin. But I'm never going to give them a, a, I'm never going to put a situation into their lives that is going to be so Overcoming that, that, that they will not, in their particular place, be able to overcome through the Spirit. We can know that every time. Every time there's a temptation to sin. Every time we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. What you can know is that there's always a way out. And if you're thinking clearly, you'll look for it. And you'll find it. He always provides a means of escape. But what we learn from the model prayer is that it is right for us not simply to pray for the strength to endure temptation, but it is right for us to pray that God would not suffer us to be tempted. It is right for us to pray that God would protect us from those temptations. And in doing so, not only is it likely that God will answer that prayer through fewer temptations, but it also gives us confidence that when we endure temptations, we know that they are holy of the will of the Lord. And that his grace is sufficient to see us through. In other words, I think that there's a lot of temptations that uh, Satan doesn't even have to work. That God doesn't even have to bring a circumstance into our lives. We wake up in the morning and we say, let's go do that. <laughs> and we're drawn away of our own lesson and enticed without any circumstance or situation even bringing it into our lives. That we might even default to certain sins, whether it be lustful thoughts or whether it be um, uh, defaulting to uh, lying uh, there's a stage that you know many children go through where they just default to lying. They don't even have to lie. 
And they lie anyway. And you say, I know you're lying. Why did you lie? Well, I don't know. I just lied. And that idea, and, and children oftentimes go through that to where you don't even have to bring a situation. You can say, hey, what did you do today? And they'll just lie to you for no good reason. And as we think about this, if we're praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we're aligning ourselves with him and, and we're seeking to do what is right, well, then we know, okay, circumstances come. I'm feeling that temptation. I'm desiring that lust. Uh, the, the lust is, is seeking to draw me away. I know that there's a way of escape. Because I've prayed that the Lord would not lead me into temptation. If he's bringing me into this, if he's allowing this to take place in my life, then there is a way of escape. Indeed, First Peter reminds us of this. As it comes to temptations. First Peter 1 verses 6 and 7. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, whether that be the trial of sin or whether that be the trial of persecution, particularly persecution is in play here with Peter, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it's not going to always feel good, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice that we might be made more like Christ through the refining fire of temptation. What should we pray? Five elements from this model prayer. Come in humility. Come in agreement. Come for provision. Come for fellowship. Come for spiritual empowerment. If you find these elements in your prayer, then you're doing well. Now, next week we talked about what we should pray. Next week we'll talk about how we should pray and why we should pray. Then I'll give you a, a, a simple kind of uh, template for elements of prayer. It's not necessarily from the Bible. It's brought together from various elements of biblical teaching. I'll show you where those things are. Uh, it's from different people's prayers throughout the Bible that you kind of play off of. If you want to learn how to pray, I would particularly encourage you to go to Daniel and read his prayers. Certainly David is good as well. But for this week, let's focus on this. This model. After this manner, pray ye. This model of how we ought to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Humble yourself before him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As in heaven, so on earth, as it says here in Luke. Align yourself with him. Give us day by day our daily bread. Ask for that which you need and desire. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Seek fellowship with the Lord as we do right and we confess our sin before God and man. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Seek spiritual empowerment to do what God has asked us to do. And that's how we should pray. That's the manner in which we should pray. Let's close in prayer.